0: Well, we're in chapter 5 now of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you turn with me there, please. We will give our attention to uh, verses 1 through 7 this morning. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes... Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children. And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not be partakers with them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, once again in your debt for a word that is true, that is given to us so that we might understand better who you are, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ, and what is expected of us as your people. We also thank you that your Holy Spirit has been given to us, not just to understand these things, but to enable the very realities that you desire to be characteristic of our lives to come into being. And so we ask that as we listen to these things, we might listen with the hope of your promise to us that that is true. And with that, Lord, find deep encouragement here. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, renowned artist Paul Gustave Dore was uh, was a famous artist in Europe. In, he uh, lived eighteen twenty to eighteen eighty three, and uh, I, I love his, his etchings and his uh, his drawings. They're, they're they're magnificent. It's one of my favorites. But he was um, he was traveling around Europe and he, he lost his passport. And uh, for a while it wasn't a problem because he was circulating in a particular country that was fairly good size. But then he came to a border crossing and uh, he knew it was going to be an issue. And so he uh, uh, he hoped that by telling them who he was, because he, he was pretty famous by that point, uh, that they would just let him cross. But uh, he got to the border and uh, he explained the situation and said, "Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've lost my passport, and, uh, but I'm, I'm Paul Gustave Doré, and, and uh, you know, I, I need to get so-and-so. And, and they said, do you know how many people come through here and try and tell us there's somebody else so that they can get across the border? you know how many times we've heard that story? And uh, he said, uh, no. But Doré insisted that he was who he was. So the official says, okay. He says, I'll give you a test. So he goes and he gets a, a pencil and, a, uh, and some paper. And he hands it to Doré and he says, sketch that, that couple of peasants over there. Doré ripped off this, this sketch so quickly and so beautifully that the moment the official looked at it, they knew who he was. And they sent him on his way with Blessings. Because his work confirms his word. Now, most of us, I think, think along the same lines. We we tend to think that what we do confirms who we are. And so we spend a lot of time in our life looking for those things that define us, that define our identity. And so we look here, we look there, we try this, we try that. You know, we, uh, we take stock of our gifts and our talents and our experiences. We look at our strengths and our weaknesses, our personalities, our likes and our dislikes, our opportunities, our general psychological makeup and everything else. And when we get it all kind of put together, we roll it up into a little ball and we say, this is me. I mean, that's what we often do. This is me. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. That kind of self-knowledge is, is, is good as far as it goes. And it's, it's not an unimportant thing to have. It's good to know ourselves. But there's something far more basic, far more fundamental about our identity as Christians that Paul says is true and really forms the bedrock of our identity as people. And the simple fact of the matter is this. Is when we are called to be the people of God, we are called to serve him and to glorify him and to fulfill his purposes through us in this world. That is the most fundamental identity that we have as people. And in this book, what we've seen is that for the first three chapters, he basically told us how we became those people, because there was a time when we weren't. But now we have become those people. And for the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he now says, this is how you're going to have to live it out. This is what it looks like if you're going to be who you really are. And what he says here is that you, you be who you really are, first by imitating God, secondly by avoiding sin, and thirdly by clinging to the truth. I'm putting a lot of this in, um, in more positive terms than Paul tends to, but it's exactly what he says. If you're going to be who you are, that's what you have to do. You have to imitate God. You have to avoid sin. You have to cling to the truth. To whatever else may define you. And there are lots of things to do. Nothing is more fundamental and foundational than living out who you are as a Christian person. And that is what we're going to give our attention to this morning. The first thing Paul says in verses 1 and 2 is that we must be who we are in Jesus Christ by imitating God. The Greek word for imitate is the word from which we get mimic. You know what a mimic is, right? A mimic is, is somebody that can look at... My daughter Grace is a great mimic. Okay, she can look at somebody else, <coughs> pick up one of their characteristics or idiosyncrasies, and bang, she can just nail it. And, and it's, it's great. It's great. But what he says here is that we are to mimic, we are to imitate nothing less than the character of God. So because God is holy, we are to imitate his holiness. Because God is merciful, we are to imitate his mercy. Because God is humble, we are to imitate his humility. Because God is loving, we are to imitate his love. And it is God's love in particular that Paul focuses on here. And notice how he does it. He reminds us that biblical love is, is not sort of the, uh, the pleasant emotion or, or good feeling about someone that we often see uh, portrayed in our, our modern day uh, world. But it is the giving of oneself for another person's welfare in spite of what it happens to cost you. Divine love is, is unconditional love. Right, It's a love that depends entirely on the one who loves and not on the other person. It's on the character of the one giving the love and not on the worthiness of the recipient. That's why Paul writes in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our most unworthy state, God loved us enough to redeem us through the blood of his own son. And because at that point, at our redemption, we have been given his nature, the nature of God himself, that Peter says we have been given this this divine nature, we are to love in the same manner, sacrificially, not because of what someone else might deserve, not because of who they are, but precisely because of who and what we are, men and women given the nature of God and called to love as he do, as he does. Hermann Ritterboss put it this way. Hermann Ritterboss was, uh, was a great German theologian, and uh, he wrote uh, a book that 's about this thick called uh, "An Outline of Paul's, Pauline Theology." Uh, I cannot tell you how many times I started that book and how hard it was to get through it. One of the hardest books I ever got through in my life. But there's one point in there at which Ritterboss focuses on this very thing. This whole idea of our being and acting out of the nature, the new nature that we have. And he puts it this way. He says, the imperative rests on the indicative And the order is not reversible. Ha! Now what the heck does he mean? Well, he means this. The indicative is who you are. Who you are as a Christian person. And the imperative, that is God's command, and our obedience to God's command, rests on that foundation of who we are in Jesus Christ. The fact that we are his children. In other words, what he's saying, and in fact, the testimony of Scripture is exactly the same, is that our relationship with God is not somehow born out of our obedience to him. No, it's just the opposite. Our obedience to him flows from the fact that we already have that relationship. The imperative rests on the indicative And that's incredibly important because we tend to be legalistic. We tend to think of God in terms of, well, he loves me more this morning because I had a good quiet time. Hallelujah, he's going to bless my day. Well, you know, I had a foul mouth on my way to work when I hit that traffic this morning and I'm sure God is going to not bless the rest of my day. Well, I mean, that's just legalism. It's just a complete misunderstanding of the gospel of grace and of where our obedience comes from and what it's meant to accomplish in our lives. Now, Paul says here that the greatest evidence of love is undeserved forgiveness. That's why he brings in the whole idea of Christ's sacrifice. John chapter 3, one of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, says that God supreme act of love was that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life in other words God bought our forgiveness not because we were lovely not because we were deserving not because he was lonely not because he needed somebody to do his work for him but because he chose to do it out of his sovereign good and loving grace to extend such mercy That until he opened our eyes to see it, we had no idea it even existed. And then when he did, we knew that there was nothing like it. And because forgiveness is the supreme evidence of God's love for us, it will also be the most convincing aspect of our love for other people. And so when Christian brothers and sisters sin against you, when they disappoint you, when they leave you in the lurch, you have no justification whatsoever to be angry or embittered or anything else. You are to forgive them because Christ's blood has already covered that sin. It is paid for. And when unbelievers sin against you you are to bear it graciously and honorably and in a godly way to demonstrate the reality of how Christ bore sin against himself from ungodly people because we are to be like him and just as the depth of God's forgiveness of our sin shows the depth of his love, so the, the depth of our forgiveness for people shows the depth of our love. Peter says this in a, in a magnificent verse. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The Greek word for fervent means a muscle stretched to its ultimate capacity. It just can't go any further. Stretched to its ultimate capacity. And what Paul or Peter says is that our love is to stretch to the limit in order to cover the multitude of sins that people commit against us, whether they be believers or not. But it is in doing that, it is in loving like that, That we demonstrate the deep and profound reality of a love that cannot be humanly generated, but can only come from a renewed nature, nature that is made like its creator, like Jesus Christ. Well, the next thing Paul says that we have to do is, is to, if we're going to be who we really are, is to avoid sin. Alexander the Great is said to have uh, found out that in his army there was a, uh, another man named Alexander who was a coward. And he went and he found that Alexander, and he said to him, real simply, he says, uh, renounce your cowardice or renounce your name. In other words, you represent me. And if you're going to be a coward, get out of here. And in many respects, that's precisely what we're supposed to do. Specifically, here we are to renounce the sins of immorality and greed because they are not consistent with our identity as the people of God. Now, Paul uses a whole lot of terms here, six of them to be exact. And uh, you would think that it's just like a laundry list, but really what he does here is he gets at something very profound. He kind of begins with the larger... More spectacular things. And then he gets to the things that we don't consider quite as serious. But he does it for a reason. He refers to immorality, for instance, which is basically a reference to all sexual sin. Because all sexual sin is a sin against God. He talks about impurity, which is far more general. And refers to things like uh, immoral thoughts and passions and ideas and fantasies. Any other form of sexual corruption. Then he mentions greed. Well, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but it's really interesting that he inserts greed here, and he does so for a very particular reason. But greed, of course, is centered in the self. It's self-will. It's self-gratification. It's self-centeredness. But then he moves outward. Not just to the things that we might actually commit with our bodies and do, but the things that we tend to commit with our mouths that we excuse a little bit more readily he talks about filthiness which is basically general obscenity talking about people in a degrading way in a disgraceful way silly talk silly talk comes a word that means dull or stupid and actually referred to the word moron that's where we get the word moron from stupid talk basically comes out of the mouth of a drunk, right? Talking really stupid, and, you know, saying things that he regrets saying tomorrow. Then he comes to coarse jesting. Coarse jesting, on the other hand, is something very different. Coarse jesting is the kind of person who, um, no matter how innocent the remark is that somebody makes, this person can turn it into something impure and suggestive. Can make it look like it's a dirty joke. Do it. Just like that, it's it's like their radar is on all the time to take everything that is said and turn it into some immoral form of wit. God's standard is clear. As his people, we are to avoid those sins like the plague. Now the question becomes, how do you avoid those things if they're already in your life and they are in the life of every person here, to some degree or other. Well, how do you deal with it? Well, Paul, Paul really gets to that. First, and he doesn't just say this out loud, he does it in the way in which he's just mentioned these six things, It's basically starve your sin. Because he talks about things that are really so gross and obvious that it might be easy to kind of set them aside and say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But he also gets at the things that we tend to excuse, not only in ourselves, but in one another. The things that we don't come down quite so hard on. And what he says is, you know what? You shouldn't even talk about those things. You shouldn't mention those things. And why does he do that? It's because of the nature of sin. If you give sin an inch, it will take a mile. If you give sin a toehold, it will take your leg. That's the way sin works. Give it anything, it will try and take everything. And so what he's saying here is you have to starve it. You have to starve it right at the source. Starve it of every opportunity it has to get a deeper hold in you. No matter what that means. Whether it's turning off the TV, whether it's not looking at billboards, whether, whatever it happens to be that stimulates lust or greed in you, you have to cut it off. And cut off the small things, because that's how it tends to gain in, entrance to begin with. It doesn't come at you with a big boogeyman approach, no. It comes, I'm kind of innocuous, it's not a big deal, you know, you probably need this, you would like this. And then it takes its piece of you, and it is bad. And so Paul says it's it's it's, it's like a it's like a burner on a gas stove. Right, the more you turn on the fuel, the higher it burns. The more you starve it for fuel, the lower it gets. And that, he says, is the first thing that we really have to do when it comes to dealing with these kinds of sins is not give them any food or fuel at all. Because if we tolerate any sin, it leads to greater sin. That's the nature of sin, and that's the nature of being a sinner. And those things, brethren, we can't change. That's the risk. That's the environment we live in. That's reality. Now, it's important to understand at the same time why Paul includes greed here. Some commentators think that he included greed because uh, uh, immoral people tend to be greedy or hungry for people, right? Or for beauty, whatever it happens to be. Want they want sex, they need this person, they want that, ba ba ba. That might be. But I think it's far far more than that. Because what Paul tends to do here is he's showing the similarities between lust and greed. And the similarity between lust and greed is that what they have in common is this it is a complete lack of contentment with what God has given you. has given us sex to be used in a particular arena at a particular point in our lives not before, after or anywhere else, just there in marriage with one person, that's it anything other than that is sin but most people aren't content with that they dabble here they dabble there, whatever it happens to be and the same is true with greed Right? We live beyond our means. We really don't need it, but we get it anyway. We really shouldn't have it, but we do it anyway. And what Paul is saying is that if we really live with a sense of God's provision as being sufficient and meeting the needs that we have for our lives, that it's good enough. That's all we have to have. And we are content. That is why, Paul says, we counteract it with thanksgiving. It's not just starving the sin, but we counteract it with thanksgiving, precisely because thanksgiving reiterates to us that God has given us all of these good things, and it is sufficient for us, that in his wisdom and in his kindness, the things that he's provided are good enough. And it also draws our, our eyes up from idolatry, which Paul says these things are, and lifts them up to true worship. Because he who thanks God truly worships God. Well, so Paul moves on now, and the final thing he says is that if we're going to be who we are, we have to cling to the truth. Now Paul puts this in the form of a warning, and it's well that he should, because he's talking about serious business here. He says, for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. And notice what he says here. The first thing he says is that anybody who, who lives a life that is has the pattern of immorality or greed no matter what they say about being a Christian they are not because a person who's been given a new nature those things are not the ruling characteristic of their lives doesn't mean that a Christian can't fall into that stuff Christians do fall into that stuff all the time but they can't remain there with a clear conscience they can't continue it year after year after year after year after year Because the new nature can't stand that. The new nature still is striving for the light, still looking to breathe the fresh air of truth. Paul says the danger for us is that people who are like that want company. It's precisely what he says at the end of Romans chapter 1. He says that they invite us into their evil because they don't want to be left alone in it. It makes them feel better to know that, that we've joined them in it. And so they seek to deceive us. They say, well, you know, they, they talk to us like, well, you know, God is a God who forgives. This, is, this isn't really that serious. It's not that bad. It's not that important. God doesn't care. It's, it's cheap grace. It's cheap grace. i just continue to sin so that grace might abound. The simple fact of the matter is is that God does care. Paul makes it very clear that God will bring wrath upon the sons of disobedience precisely because of these things. Therefore, he says, don't join them. Don't join them in this. In Flannery O'Connor's short novel, A Temple of the Holy Spirit, it's an adolescent girl who's uh, visited by uh, two older teenage cousins, and, and what they want to do is introduce her to, um, how should I put it, the, uh, uh, the more sophisticated adult interests. And uh, at one point, uh, they're, they're talking, and um, she overhears one cousin saying to the other cousin, they're kind of mocking this, uh, this nun who uh, was uh, giving a lecture on, uh, on how to deal with uh, young boys or young men uh, in the backseat of the car if they went too far. And uh, apparently the sister's name was Sister Perpetua. I love the name, Sister Perpetua. And um, Sister Perpetua says, this is what you're supposed to say. Stop, sir. I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. I don't know if that's ever worked, but the, the, the older cousins thought it was absolutely hysterical that, that Sister Perpetua would recommend something so ludicrous, so ridiculous. And they just howled. The young girl, however, she was deeply moved because the news that God had placed within her because of his love for her, his own Holy Spirit, just struck her with a sense of awe and reverence. And it made her, frankly, want to please him by obeying him to the best of her ability. That is Paul's entire point here. It is the good, incredible, gracious, wonderful, life changing things that God has done for you in chapters 1 through 3 are to resound in your lives. As you live them out and to be who you are as Christian people. And part of that is to imitate God. And part of that is to avoid sin. And part of that is to cling to the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for uh, your mercies to us. So often we, uh, we recognize that were we to count them, uh, we would not get anything else done this day, but we would certainly praise you and find our souls uh, deeply comforted and, uh, and overwhelmed with joy at the things that you have done for us and given to us because of Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, we would go forth from this place uh, looking for some of those things, thankful for them, and enjoying the opportunity we have through our relationships, through our activities, uh, through uh, all the things that we do and are, to honor you as the great giver, not only of eternal life, but of every good gift that we have through Jesus Christ. May it resound to your glory. May we resound to your glory as well in the way in which we conduct ourselves. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.